Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we expect your kingdom to advance in our lives with miracles, signs, and wonders, and we will rejoice always. Holy Spirit, please fall fresh upon us as we serve you with love, humility, and excellence. Empower us to have peace, wisdom, and patience as we go through each day. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Valerie. It's, uh, it's good to be back. We've been away for a couple weeks. If you're new, if you're visiting, my name is Chris. I serve as a pastor here. Um, we're really we're happy to be back from vacation. We loaded the kids into a plane. We flew down south. We drove 1,500 miles, and then we loaded the kids on a plane and flew back home. So um, you know how it goes. Like when you have young kids, there's really no such thing as a vacation. It's a trip. Uh, but we had a great trip, so thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> we're uh, obviously Thanksgiving is coming up in four days, and I don't, I don't think, I hope that's not news to anybody. Uh, if it is, Thanksgiving is coming up in four days. And so you won't be surprised to hear, of course, uh, we're going to spend some time thinking about gratitude and reflecting on gratitude this morning. And we're really taking as our opportunity to do that a classic text from the New Testament about gratitude. And it's about more than gratitude. Um, and I've... <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had a hard time almost wrapping my mind around like how many things are going on and it can be very frustrating to have to leave things on the cutting room floor. Um, gratitude is, is not, Paul is talking about more than just gratitude here. Uh, gratitude is one slice of the pie, but it's such an important slice of the pie. And as we'll see throughout the course of the morning, even though he's talking about a lot of different things, they all overlap and they're all maybe more closely related than we think. And this morning, Paul starts, in this morning's text, Paul starts by making what I found to be a surprising connection between gratitude and anxiety. Do you notice how he starts? So he starts in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He's actually wrapping up this letter that he's written to a group of Christians in a little town called Philippi. 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll, I'll say it again. I'll repeat myself. Rejoice. And then right on the heels of that, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, no matter how you slice it, there's been a pretty stunning uptick in anxiety in the world. And, and whether you're, I mean, many of us probably feel anxiety, whether it's acute or whether it's chronic. Uh, you, if you pay any attention to the news, you know about anxiety. If you know any of what's going on, especially in middle schools, high schools, and colleges, you know that, that it's a, this is not a good thing, but this is a, there's a meteoric rise the amount of anxiety that middle and high school and college students are self-reporting in young adults. And there's a, there must be a thousand reasons for this. I don't understand them all, and you didn't come here to hear me explain why is there so much anxiety going on. Um, for the sake of today's sermon, it almost doesn't matter where it comes from. What does matter is that Paul, as he starts concluding this letter, is going to start teaching us about what we call the antidote to anxiety. You know an antidote, right? It's, it's very similar to a vaccine. We've been talking a lot about vaccines for the past two and a half, three years. Uh, an antidote, is, what is it? it's, a, it's something you take and it inoculates you against a certain poison. You take an antidote and it makes the poison not poisonous. Paul says there's an antidote to anxiety that strips anxiety of its poisonous, crippling potency. It neutralizes anxiety. It doesn't actually take anxiety away, but it strips it of its, of its death-dealing power, in a sense. And Paul says the antidote to anxiety is, well, it's kind of a number of things, but we're going to use the word gratitude this morning. And I'll show you over the course of the morning, I hope, that a lot of what Paul talks about, gratitude and contentment and joy, are actually related. But he starts by giving this series of two commands that seem really unrealistic. And maybe that caught your attention like it caught mine. He says, he doesn't just command us, the first words in, in verse 4, he doesn't just say rejoice, he says rejoice always. Always. And then he follows that close on the heels in verse 6 and says, do not be anxious about anything. There are no qualifications, so he doesn't say, don't be anxious just about the things that, you know, don't be anxious when things are going well. He doesn't say rejoice when things are going well. He says rejoice always. Don't be anxious about anything. And notice, like, these are, these are strong commands. These aren't suggestions. He's not saying, well, maybe you should just, like, think on the bright side. No, he actually comes off pretty strong. Rejoice always. Don't be anxious about anything. It may sound kind of like a pipe dream to you, something that's just very whimsical, especially because we so often think of, of joy as being circumstantial. So it's really easy to feel joy when your kid brings home a good report card, right? It's really easy to feel joy when, when you achieve this milestone at work. It's easy to feel joy when, you're, when you have a grandchild born in your family, or for some of you, when you have a great-grandchild born in your family. Easy to feel joy when you get that date with that person you really wanted to go on a date with. Like, whatever it is. But what about when circumstances are less than joyful? So how do you rejoice? Because Paul says rejoice always. So how do you rejoice when you didn't get into your first choice college? 
How do, you, how do you rejoice when the less qualified guy got the promotion over you? Or when someone you love dearly's health is declining? Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. How do you not be anxious when your company is going through a round of layoffs? There are times in life when you need a cast iron hope, joy, contentment, not just a soft sentiment. And Paul tells us that we find that through, of all things, gratitude. Now, I mentioned before, I'm going to use the terms gratitude and joy and contentment almost interchangeably. And that may strike you as a little bit odd because they, they seem like different ideas, but the more I've, time I've spent in this text, the more I realize I think Paul is using them pretty much interchangeably. Let me just show you a little bit of, of behind the curtain of why I say that. Uh, the word for rejoice that he started, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. He repeats himself. That word rejoice is the same word as the Greek word for thanksgiving, which is also the same word as the word for, or the same root as the word for grace, which is the same word as the word for gift. So in other words, all of this has to do with receiving some sort of a gift and the feelings that we experience or the reality that we have received something. And this is really important that we have received something, not that we have achieved something. So when Paul is talking about these various contentment, gratitude, joy, even those, I don't want to say feelings, but those mindsets, those states of being, are states of being that we receive, not that we achieve. So as it turns out, gratitude and rejoicing and contentment are all close cousins. And in one sense, we're going to spend the morning fleshing that out. But when Paul starts and says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I'll say it, rejoice. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same Greek root as the word for be grateful, always. Again, I'll say, be grateful. This morning, with Thanksgiving coming up in four days, let's think more about that then. What does it look like to be, grati to be gratitude, to be grateful, to rejoice always? Now, the simple reality is there are times in life when that's really difficult, which points us to the first thing we need to remember, that gratitude, as Paul understands it, is not an activity. He understands it more as a posture. We'll think a little bit about the difference between an activity and a posture. An activity is something that's one and done, and then it's over. So gratitude as an activity means you got a, somebody gave you a nice gift, and you sit down, and what do you, you write your thank you note, and you send it, you put it in the mail, and then you just kind of move on. It's not that you're not still grateful for it, but like you did the activity of gratitude. Or maybe it's your tradition around the Thanksgiving table to talk about the things that you're grateful for. That's a Again, very important, that's a good, healthy conversation to have. But in some sense, the activity means you do it, you express your, your gratitude, and then you're done. On to the next thing. I'm not knocking that, those are healthy practices, but, but Paul understands gratitude to mean something much deeper than that. He thinks of it more like a posture which affects everything you do. No matter where you are in life, you have a certain posture, even a physical posture, right? So if it's like you're, if, if you have good posture and you know, you're straight up, whether you're sitting at your office or whether you're sitting in the car or whether you're sitting here right now or whether you're walking through your neighborhood, like that posture is with you no matter where you go. 
Paul says that gratitude is like that posture. It's not an activity. It's more of a mindset that is with us. And we know this in part because he says, rejoice in the Lord always, no matter where you are, not just when circumstances are good, also when things are going poorly. And he gives us a little window into his experience here. If you have your Bible open, skip down to verse 11. Here's what he says. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, which means that contentment cannot be circumstantial. Whether well-fed or, I know how to be content when I'm well-fed, and I know how to be content when I'm hungry. If Paul was writing in 2023, he might even add, and I know how to be content when I'm hangry. I know how to be content when I'm living in plenty and when I'm living in want. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life, you know that we actually know, he says earlier in the letter, he's writing this letter to Christians from prison in Rome. And we're modern Westerners, and so we have a basic sense of human rights. And we would all say that even prisoners have certain rights and certain things. They, uh, newsflash, ancient Rome, that was not the case. So Paul can actually write from a Roman prison where the conditions are far less humane than we would even think of when we think of prison and say, I know how to be content even here where I'm not being treated like a human. How can he write that? In part, it must be because gratitude is not just a, well, let me just sit and try to count my blessings and think of some things I'll be grateful for and that will make me happier. It doesn't. It doesn't change the conditions he's living in. He must have arrived at something more like a posture and the posture starts to arrive, which starts to almost think about it like improving our posture. How do you improve your posture? When we remember that gratitude is received, not achieved. See, the danger when we think about gratitude, and especially when we think about gratitude as an activity, is that we think, okay, things are hard right now. So I just need to stop and I need to reflect on, okay, what's going well in my life? And maybe that will help. And maybe that does help for a really brief while. But if you've ever tried that, you know it wears off, and it wears off quickly. This thing that is painted as a silver bullet really isn't. And then it just compounds itself and gets worse because I tried to do the right thing, and it didn't help, and now I feel worse, and now what's wrong with me? Like, do you say, like, it can be this, this very negative downward spiral that can actually do some, some damage to you at a deep faith level. And the main problem with that, there are a couple problems, a couple related problems, but it all comes back to you thinking you have to figure this out. You have to figure out gratitude yourself. But Paul doesn't say it's anything you achieve. He says it's something you receive. As best as I can tell, there are two key ways we try to achieve kind of this mindset. They're, they're kind of related, even though they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin. The first misunderstanding is, is to, to hear this and hear about gratitude and think, okay, I just, I just need to work hard at being more grateful. So I just need to look inside myself and I'll find contentment deep within myself. That's, uh, if you're into philosophy, this is basically humanism. I just need to look inside myself to find my happiness, my joy, my contentment, my gratitude. I need to be true to myself. Here's the problem with that. 
is that when life is really challenged, like that's, that's, again, it's not that hard to do when things are going well, but when it hits the fan, and let's face it, the longer you live, you realize it's not a question of if, but when. When it hits the fan, when life just punches you in the gut, all of this work that you've done to feel contentment feels like it evaporates because deep in your gut, you feel the discontent. And now you start to feel inadequate because I was supposed to look inside and find contentment, but all I see is discontentment right now. And I, I'm realizing I can't actually will myself to the contentment I feel like I'm supposed to have. And so what's wrong with me? Something must be fundamentally wrong and broken with me. It, leads us, it can lead us to a very dark place. That first misunderstanding is this. You need to look inside yourself to find contentment or gratitude. The second is almost, it's almost like an end run around. It's, it's avoidant, maybe. It basically teaches that, no, we, we actually find contentment by, by disengaging or by detaching. This is similar to what a, a lot of um, the Buddhist kind of system teaches. And those of you who, if you know more about Buddhism, you, you know that I'm going to really oversimplify it here. But essentially, the... The notion is the goal of life is to just find contentment by detaching from the desires of this world, by somehow getting outside of everything so that when you get that gut punch, it's almost like you're outside of it and it doesn't hurt. Trouble with that is then things go well and you're not allowed to feel the joy. Here's what's unique about the Christian faith, unique about Jesus is he allows us to both feel the incredibly high highs that come with life, and there are some beautiful high moments, and the incredible deep lows, and be honest about the lows, while at the same time realizing that the lows are not the lowest it can go, because, a little teaser here, a little spoiler alert, because Christ has experienced the lowest of the low on our behalf, and the highs are not the highest it can go. It gets better because, spoiler alert, Jesus experienced the lowest of the low and then gives us new life and was raised from the dead. Christianity both lets us be honest about the high highs and honest about the low lows and have this perspective to realize there's even something bigger and better. Which is what Paul is getting at when he says, I know what it is to be in need I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret to contentment in any and all circumstances. He does, no, do you notice, by the way, he doesn't say he's not talking about detachment. Otherwise, he would say, I know what it's like to be content apart from all the circumstances. In the circumstance, in the thick of it, I have found contentment, he says. I misspoke. He doesn't actually say I've found contentment. He says I've learned to be content. And you wonder, how does that and why does that matter? It matters because of the next verse, verse 13, which is one of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible, misapplied. You've heard it. You can probably say it with me. You don't have to. You can if you want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We hear that verse, and when you just hear that verse out of context, you think it means Jesus can help me achieve my wildest dreams. I just need to trust God, and I'll get the job, or I'll get the raise, or I'll get the girl, or I'll get the whatever, But Paul, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me right on the heels of telling you this is how you find contentment in suffering in a Roman prison. Let's pick that verse apart just a little bit and see what's going on. 
He says our, our strength, our resilience, our contentment, our joy, our gratitude, all these things come from not detachment and not from looking within, from Jesus, the Christ. Through him. I can do all things through him, he says. He's not figuring this out on his own. He's not willing himself to contentment or gratitude as though you could will yourself to contentment. He's actually saying, I, I can't. Circumstances are actually bigger than me, but Christ is bigger than my circumstances. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There it is again. I don't find my strength from within. Jesus gives me this strength. This is not my own. This is actually supernatural. It is outside of my nature. Which gets us back to this thing we said at the very beginning, remember? That the posture of gratitude Paul wants for us is not about something you can achieve because you, we can't. It's something that we purely receive. It's not something you, like, if, if you walk away from this morning thinking, Pastor Chris said, I just need to work harder to be more grateful, you have completely missed it. You cannot will yourself into contentment in Christ. We receive it. We don't achieve it. But in order to get to a place where we actually can receive it, we have to first get to a place where we recognize that we need it. We have to recognize a need. If you don't feel like you have much of a need, then why, why would you receive anything in the first place? There's, like a, there's a little paradox here, right? Because now we're talking about gratitude and contentment, which, which indicates strength. But in order to get to that point, you have to admit need, which is a form of weakness. Like the paradox Paul is getting at here is the only way to get stronger is by getting weaker. Now, that seems like a contradiction, but you know it's true if you've ever been to the gym. You decide that you're, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to start lifting weights, and I'm going to get strong, right? And so you lift weights, and you lift heavy weights, and then you get home, and your bones and your muscles and your limbs just feel like absolute spaghetti. What happened? You lifted these weights to get strong, and you just got weak. But... In three or four or five days, if you haven't been working out in a while, it might be five days before you're not as sore, you're a little bit stronger. And if you go to the gym every single day or however, you know, very regularly, and you keep making yourself weaker every day at the gym, what will happen after a few months? You will be stronger than you were when you started. The path to true strength runs directly through weakness. You don't get stronger by eating cake and bacon and sitting on the sofa all day. That would be wonderful. It just doesn't work. And you don't get spiritually stronger by just sitting around and trying to recognize and name the strength within. It actually comes from a moment of weakness and a moment of need of realizing, I actually can't. I, really, I, like, I actually don't have the strength. I don't have the contentment that I want. I don't, I'm not feeling the gratitude right now. Lord, help me. The joy and the gratitude that Paul 
spurs us towards begins with recognizing that we are needy and weak, that we are sick and we are broken and we are sinful. It comes through weakness, but it leads to strength. I mean, think about it this way. If you, like, if you didn't have any needs, if you weren't weak, then why would you need an external source of strength? Why would you need Jesus? And because gratitude and contentment are so closely related, then how would you ever be content? You will never be content without recognizing your need and your weakness. Because if you never admit need and weakness, then all you're doing is working to get more, to just pile up and amass enough to get you through the next thing. But here's the thing, you will always wonder if it's enough. You will never be sure that you have enough. And you will work and you will work and you will work and you will feel what? Anxiety, of course. Because do I have enough? Am I strong enough? Am I good enough? Paradoxically, the greatest strength, the greatest contentment comes through naming and admitting our weakness, our sin, and our need. We need Christ. And in our need, Christ Jesus reassures us with these twin realities that he is for us and he is with us. He is for us and he is with us. That helps us to make sense of verse 6. Verse 6 in there, it says, says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. Like the executive summary there, he's saying, don't be anxious, just pray. And a lot of us are thinking like, well, I tried that and it didn't work. It won't if you treat prayer the same way we treat gratitude so often as an activity. I tried doing the thing, checking the box and moving on, and it didn't make everything better. But remember, Paul isn't talking in categories of activities, little things that are one and dones. He's talking about postures, about life, about ongoing lifestyle. So in other words, we're not talking about prayer as in I folded my hands and I I said my two-minute, like, Lord, I really need help. It would be nice if you would help me here. He's talking about a 24-7 awareness of your need for God. Karl Barth, a German theologian about 100 years ago, wrote masterfully about prayer. Here's how he puts it, and he's writing about this verse in Philippians 4. He says that in prayer, the knowledge starts to settle into our bones that God, in fact, is for us. And it's not that God wasn't for you before. He always has been. It's just that we don't realize it. We don't internalize it until we absorb that through prayer. And so he continues and he says, wherever in life you feel a lack of joy or a lack of gratitude or a lack of contentment, that's diagnosing one area in your life where you actually don't believe that God is for you. Little side question. This is Pastor Chris. This isn't Karl Barth. Do you believe? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you actually, like, think about this for a minute and and let this question kind of linger. Let it mess with you. Take it home this afternoon and think more. Do you really believe that God is for you? The way Bart puts it, Karl Bart again, he says, through prayer, man is relieved 
of all the care and all the fear of being for himself. Because, is this good news? If God is for you, then you don't have to be for yourself, and you're completely relieved of the anxiety of thinking you have to be for yourself, and you have to be enough, however you define enough. In prayer, as the reality that God is for you settles into the depths of your soul, your anxiety becomes less and less at home. And by the way, if God is for you, and if he commands you to pray, prayer is not a suggestion here either, it's a command, it can only be because God actually wants to hear from you. God is, God is less like the, he's, it's not even less, he's not. God is not the stern father waiting for you to bring home your report card and evaluate how you've done this quarter. God is much more like the lover waiting by the telephone. Remember when you had to wait by a telephone? He's more like the lover waiting by a telephone, eagerly expecting his beloved to call him, or going out and checking the mail every day to see if a note came from his beloved. And that truth, that foundation in verse 6, it's actually built on verse 5, which ends, the Lord is near. Now, again, if you have your Bible open, the very end of verse 5, it says, the Lord is near. And then you see a tiny little number 6, and then the next verse, do not be anxious about anything. And we think, okay, new verse, that must mean a new thought, and we, we forget that those are related. Just a little side historical note, verse numbers weren't added to the Bible until 1,500 years after, uh, after Paul wrote So take that little verse number out and listen to the connection. End of verse 5. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. If God is for us and if God is with us, then we have no need to be anxious because we can bank on him. We can receive from him. So Joanna, our two-year-old daughter, is in this weird phase, and it's just started a week or so ago, where she's feeling, ang- she's feeling afraid of things that didn't used to scare her. Maybe she's learning about, fe- I don't know. And so she used to love the airplanes, and just a couple of days ago, one of the jets is taking off from Pease. And, you know, they're loud, and they make, you know. And she looks up, and she's, Daddy, that's scary. Now, I could have told her in that moment, Joanna, you don't have to be afraid. Those jets won't hurt you. Which is rationally true, Right? Like, those jets are not going to hurt her. But for a two-year-old, for a 38-year-old, for a 78-year-old, like, that's not helpful. It is rationally true, but it is not helpful, in part because what am I telling her? I'm saying, Joanna, just dig deep down inside your little, you know, whatever is going on here and tune into your ability to think rationally and reassure yourself that those jets won't hurt you. You don't have to be afraid. That's silly. No, instead I get down and I wrap her up in a big hug and I say, Joanna, you don't have to be afraid. Daddy's with you. You see the difference? You don't have to be afraid. Those jets won't hurt you. Just come to your senses. Or you don't have to be afraid. Daddy's with you. God says to us through Jesus Christ, you don't have to be afraid. Daddy's with you. No matter what. Now, if you don't need God, if you haven't arrived at the place where you, you like actually recognize your weakness and your need, that's an empty reassurance. It'll skip off like a, a smooth stone on smooth water. 
But when you have arrived at your place of need and you've actually come to grips with your anxiety, that, rea- that truth becomes an oasis of fresh, cool water in your parched desert of anxiety. Do you see? And it helps us to understand where Paul is going. So in verse 4, he said, rejoice. Verse 5, he said, the Lord is near. God is with us. Verse 6, don't be anxious. Take your request to God. And then verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, listen to this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If prayer, if gratitude, if contentment, all these related ideas, if they're just activities that we do and then move on, then don't be surprised when you don't feel peace. They don't work that way. But if you approach prayer and if you approach gratitude and contentment and even just the awareness that God is with us and for us as a posture, not just an activity, it will transform you. And as you grow into the conviction through prayer that God is with you and for you, as you grow into gratitude and as you start receiving gratitude and contentment from God, like how can you not know the peace of God? How can you not? Søren Kierkegaard, a um, wonderful Danish theologian, put it this way. He observed that prayer is actually less about you changing God and it's more about God changing you. God wants to change you for the better. He wants to take away your anxiety. He has taken your anxiety. As we wrap up, let's just, let's just finish with Jesus again. We usually do. Think about Jesus who took our anxiety, who you could almost say like he became anxiety for us. So psychologists tell us that we feel the deepest anxiety, like the thing that makes us more anxious than anything else is the fear of loss. They've done some amazing studies. I don't know if the numbers are exact here, but like we would rather not receive $100 than we would receive $100 and then lose 50. Now, if you were to ask anybody, would you like $50? We'd be like, yeah. But we would actually rather not get the $50 than we would perceive that we have lost some. Our fear of loss is that strong. We, We are all terrified of loss. There's something just human in that. And so we work tirelessly to avoid losing what we think we have. Well, at the cross, Jesus lost everything. I mean, he lost his life, his physical life, yes, but he lost so much more than that. He lost his spiritual life, his vitality, his union with the Father, his relationship with his daddy. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out. Contrast that with, don't be afraid, daddy's with you. And yet Jesus is saying, in this moment, I'm not sure he is. But remember, the Christian story doesn't end with Good Friday It continues on through Easter Sunday. It doesn't end with dead. It continues on through raised from the dead. Incidentally, you don't get to raised from the dead without dead. So there is a death that's necessary. There is a loss that is necessary. But when we are willing to lose whatever it is in this world we're holding on to, Jesus says, I will give you so much more. That's how Paul can say, I've learned to be content. 
Whatever the story, I could be in a Roman prison where I'm treated like an animal. They can't do anything. They can't take anything from me that God has for me. And that's how Jesus can offer and promise you and me and say, I've come that they may have life. Life. And have it abundantly. Our anxiety, our fear of loss, it pales in comparison to the life that Jesus gives. It becomes an afterthought. So look to Jesus. Receive from Jesus who gives life. Recognize your need. Receive from him. And let the the ensuing gratitude that just kind of bubbles up as you receive from him be your antidote to anxiety. Amen.